So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity to lift up a people group this morning that is not too small or not too large for a big God like you. And a prayer that's not uh, inconsequential uh, in the high court, uh, standing before the high king of heaven, we bring a request to you for the nigh people of 11.8 million people uh, that are lost in uh, good works and Hinduism. Lord, we ask you to draw this people group to you and to stir in people here uh, a desire to be a worker going to the far corners of the field, uh, a, a restlessness with staying and a desire to go enjoy you on the far corners of the field and um, to be a sweet aroma uh, and draw people, group, or, uh, people to you as you are drawing and stirring in their hearts, Lord. We ask you to do this. Connect these dots in your time and for your glory. And uh, so our Lord will return. We ask that all of these unreached people groups uh, will be reached. Lord, also we want to pray for um, another church in our community, praying for Wesley United Methodist and Chris Yost and his family. Lord, I want to pray for his ministry first. First of all, that you would guard his heart uh, from uh, just the rigors of the work, that he would be blessed and he would be nourished in worship and that he would be guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, that you would just fan the flame of his faith as he's preparing to preach each Sunday and as he's shepherding between Sundays. We pray that he's got a, a team around him that uh, just they are working together in a way that is, is uh, furthering your kingdom, that is in... Uh, uh, bring you glory as they serve together, Lord. We pray for the church at Wesley, Lord, that this church is enjoying you this morning and being equipped to be salty, bright, and aromatic the moment they um, uh, leave the church building at around noon today. Just pray that they would deploy into our community and join you in all the places, from neighborhoods to cubicles to grocery stores and everywhere in between. Uh, Lord, we pray the same thing for us. I pray in these next few minutes that we will be equipped as a people, uh, that we will be equipped to see life circumstances in a, maybe a whole new way, a way that is um, guided by the good news that we'll consider in John chapter 11 this morning. Just entrusting these few minutes to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. You can turn to John chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. One of the things that I enjoy about the book of John, uh, it's a dear book to us. Our first nine years of our church plant were spent in the book of John. Uh, so we took a lot of time. In fact, the chapter that I'm preaching this morning, I think we spent 12 or 13 Sundays on. So it was quite, a, quite an investment and one that had a tremendous uh, benefit, a blessing to us. It, it was a dear chapter in the life of our church, uh, literally and figuratively. Uh, but one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed about the book of John over the years is our Lord deals with practical stuff. He's not uh, academic. If you're an academian, academic stuff is kind of cool. You know, if you're going to spend your life, your lives in university and, you know, really studying and collecting data, that's great. Man, I think that's awesome. But I think there's something to the, the notion of uh, connecting real, true, and potent ideas to real-life circumstances, and our Lord does that throughout the book of John. His first miracle is a wedding. He shows up at a wedding, and he saves the day, and he does something profound. And there, this morning, he's at a funeral, and he declares something here at this funeral and does something profound. So in some ways, he runs the gamut from wedding to funeral and everything in between. 
of showing up and doing profound things. He's made some profound statements in the book of John so far. These I am statements, at a time where people are hungry, he's declared, I'm the bread of life. At a time when people are dealing with real thirst, they don't have uh, water access like we have, he declares as they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths, uh, he declares, he says, come to me and you will never thirst. And he also says, I'm the light of the world that will guide you through the wilderness of life. He speaks into real circumstances. He speaks to lostness as he says, I'm the door of the sheepfold and I'm the shepherd himself. And this morning he speaks into sickness and death. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not academic. He's speaking to real people with real problems in real circumstances. This morning he's speaking into a context where two sisters have lost a brother. And this brother was dear to them, and chances are this brother was their breadwinner as well. So they've lost a brother, and they've lost a means for living at this point. And this morning our Lord shows up as a deliverer and a provider and a helper for real people with real loss. Stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word from John chapter 11. I'm going to focus just for our reading in verses 25 and 26, but we're going to spend the morning in the chapter. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, speak to us from these words. Give us life. Open the eyes of our hearts to the greatness of the person and work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. I want to spend a few minutes just unpacking the luggage of chapter 20, or verse 25. And then this is kind of a little audio, audible map for you. I'm going to spend the morning in the chapter really in three parts. There are three really wonderful things that I just want to draw out of this chapter over the course of reading it. So we're just going to sort of bathe in this story in John chapter 11. But I want to spend just a moment sort of unpacking the luggage from John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, he declares to Martha. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. This is the fifth I am statement of the book of John. An I am statement is a statement of deity. Jesus is declaring here that he is God, nothing less. He's very clearly declaring that he's the promised Messiah, and his declarations result in divisions and faith. Either people want to follow him and worship him, or they want to stone him. I think if we were truly hearing today what the Lord is declaring, what he declared then, truly hearing it now, it would either make you mad or you would result in worship, or it would, would result in worship. Because what he has to say is that profound, and it causes stark response. And that's what we see here in this declaration, this fifth declaration as well. He brings someone from death to life. And the chapter ends with them plotting to take his life. Plotting to kill him. Just consider that for a moment. He has declared with these words, I am, that he is God. 
He's also declared that he is the resurrection and the life. It's more than a declaration of ability. He didn't say, I can resurrect and bring life. That's profound. He said, I am very resurrection and life itself. Not only can I do it, I am the resurrection and the life. It is a profound. He embodies life and resurrection. He is where and in whom resurrection and life are found. He states them together too, resurrection and life, because you can't really have one apart from the other and be happy and healthy and whole. Because if you have resurrection alone, then you're just in this eternal death. You need life consequent as a result of this resurrection. And he introduces both. I reflect on Ephesians chapter 2. It's one of the most dear chapters in the Bible speaking to the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll just encourage you maybe later on today or this week to just jot that chapter down, those passages, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But there's a little progression that takes place in that chapter. And two things go together. He makes us alive together with Christ. He quickens us. And he raises us. Resurrection and life go together. And then later on in verse 10, he prepares good works for us to walk out in advance. Life. Resurrection and life go together, and you see them both together here in this one passage. And third, he makes a promise here. He points to something that is really profound. He makes a promise of the one who believes. Listen to what he says. The one who believes in me, even if he dies will live that's a profound promise what he's saying there is that death for those united to christ by faith is just a door death is just a door simply passing from one death or one life to another paul actually spoke to this idea in the book of first corinthians i'll share this passage with you you can jot this down or if you'd like to turn there you can it's not a focus of the morning but i think it's profound it's really a beautiful passage he says in in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 54 he says death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us glory or gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Really, what's going on there, what Paul is doing that I enjoy is developed in this John chapter 11 and the story that unfolds is Paul is death heckling. He's death heckling. You know the difference between a dirt dauber and a wasp? A wasp is the kind of thing that sends you scurrying and running, and a, dead dauber, a, a, a dirt dauber looks like a wasp, but actually they can sting, but you really have to coax them. You really have to be mean to a, de- a dirt dauber to have them sting you. What we're talking about here is through Christ and in Christ, for those who are united to Christ by faith, death goes from being a wasp to just simply a dirt dauber. I thought about a musical version of this truth where Paul is death heckling, where this story in John chapter 11 is so beautifully uh, portrayed, the victory over death that we have in Christ. As I'm still waiting for the day that someone asks for a song to be played at their funeral, and actually Christy told me yesterday she would play this at mine, uh, MC Hammers Can't Touch This. <laughs> you know the song, right? Can't touch this. 
Nah, nah, nah. And it, with the big pants, you could, I, I even wear the pants. I don't really care because I won't be there. But I really like the thought. Can't touch this. It's been playing in my head all weekend. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Because death has lost its victory, O oh, death. Where is your victory, O oh, death? Is where is your sting? Death heckling. For those united to Christ by faith, we can join Paul in death heckling. Can't touch this, right? Do you believe this? What I want to do in the next few minutes is just unpack the chapter. That's the luggage. It's not a lot of luggage. It'll kind of come back up. It'll resurface as we take our time moving through this chapter. But I'd like to just add maybe a little commentary to kind of develop this chapter for you as we go. And again, I want to bring out three things as we go through the chapter. So let's begin in chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. If you've read the Gospels, you're probably familiar with this three. Uh, Luke chapter 10 tells a story of a, a meal where you know the story of Martha who's hustling around and Mary who's worshiping and enjoying the Lord and Mary has chosen the better thing and Martha's like, why don't you tell Mary to get to work? You know that story. That's this uh, family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They lived about two miles away from Bethlehem or from Jerusalem in um, Bethany. Verse 2, it says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. He's speaking to what's going to unfold in the next chapter of John. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may, may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. All right, there's just three things I want to draw out here from this first little section. I want you to just notice in verse 3 and then later on in verse 5. In verse 3 it says, he whom you loved is ill. Okay, so just from the... That verse, we can draw out that Jesus loved Lazarus, okay? And then later on in verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's apparently a deep fondness and love and affection for this family. So just note that. And also note this in verse 4. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Look at what the next words say. It is for the glory of God. It what? The illness. This illness is for the glory of God. Okay, so here's the first thing I want to bring out from this chapter that's really, really, I think, a treat. It might be difficult, but I think it'll be helpful for you. And the first thing I want you to consider is that Jesus waits. And you could actually even say, fittingly, given what he said at the beginning, God waits. God waits waits. Let's start with verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So I want you to just take a moment to just consider just straight away. You might jot in your notes or jot out in the margin there. Illness for the glory of God. Illness for the glory of God. There are lots of things that could be inserted into that sentence 
Crisis X for the glory of God. Now, I don't know everyone's story in here, but I know a lot of the faith stories in this room. One of the benefits of, of taking our time, this real inefficient process of walking through a membership process with folks that are part of our church body, is we, the elders, have a chance to hear the, 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 uh, the, the testimonies and the stories of faith of each of our member families. And in those stories, almost without fail, that's not a given, but almost without fail, there's some sort of crisis, some sort of difficulty that the Lord worked in that season to develop faith, or begin faith in the life of a, a believer. So you could almost just consider for a moment. It might be not. It may not be the moment that you came to faith. It may not be out of a crisis. But I guarantee, crisis. If you look back on on your story of faith, those are the times where you grew the most. So illness for the glory of God could be replaced with anything. One of the things that I. I didn't share last week. I, I shared when we were back in John years ago, and it's come up from time to time. But I'll read this passage again, and then I'll share this personal thought. John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw okay, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Blindness for the glory of God. We have um, two adult kids now that were born visually impaired, and uh, it's one of the things that we've had to work through our whole lives, our whole marriage nearly, and their whole lives. And man, God has really, really been good in that disability and I know man in this room is full of all kinds of things that you can relate to where you could insert something into that statement instead of illness for the glory of God it might be joblessness for the glory of God you might reflect on a time where you thought this is a dark night this is terrible I never want to think about this again but it's likely the place where God was caring for you the most and it may have been the place where you experienced him most profoundly that dark night for the glory of God. Maybe it's marital struggles for the glory of God. The, uh, the two things for the McGraws, for me anyway, and I've shared this a number of times over the years, it's been the visual impairment of our two children. I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for us wrestling with the Lord through that when they were little ones. And the other thing would be marital struggles. Christy, I think, she doesn't give the same weight to this that I do, but our first few years were so hard, so hard. Christy is such a difficult person. <laughs> She's so difficult. I mean, but the Lord has so changed her over the years. But man, I'll tell you, I get, I get emotional about it. I have to laugh about it and, and make some, some kind of humor about it because I get really emotional about it because God showed up for us in the difficulties it was marital struggles for the glory of God. And that's why I really, really, really enjoy helping folks who are dealing with marital struggles because there's hope. And God not only can be, he will be glorified in the struggle if you can merely just, I shouldn't say merely because I know it's not a mere thing, but stick it out. Marital struggles for the glory of God. How about this? Depression for the glory of God. Could God use depression 
to glorify himself? Absolutely. Relational struggles for the glory of God. Things not going planned for the glory of God. Insert problem X. It's a way of reframing all of those problems just in light of verse 4, where Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. This illness is for the glory of God. Now let's connect to this thought of waiting. Verses 3 and verse 5 both identify that Jesus loves not only Lazarus, he loves Mary and Martha. He loves this family dearly. He loves Mary and Martha, and yet he's going to let them experience the confusion of him not hustling to their side. He's going to let them deal with the disappointment of their brother breathing his last. He's going to let them deal with the profound loss of burying their only brother and provider. The passage, if you read it the way it unfolds, it actually conveys the message, which is just so crazy. He loved them, so he stayed where he was two days longer. What? He loved them, so he waited till Lazarus was dead and buried. He waits because he loves us, because seeing and experiencing his glory in his timing and on his terms and is in his circumstances over a remedy to our problem is the better good. Man, who doesn't want a fixed problem? But we should want more for God to be glorified, for our Lord to be glorified. He loves us, and yet he lets us get sick. He loves us, and yet he lets us lose our jobs. He loves us, so he lets us go through difficult circumstances that are completely out of our control. Talk about reframing a lot of your lives. He loves us, not because we did anything wrong, necessarily. He lets us go through really terrible and difficult things because he's up to something in those sicknesses and trials. He's up to a glory plan. He's doing something with our loss. He tarries for his timing. I want you to hear that. He tarries for his timing. I've said for years, uh, it actually a quote that my pastor years ago uh, at our church after we were married would say often, he said, God, it's seldom early and never late. I love the sound of that. Don't you? I mean, that's, that's a sweet quote. And I've used it a number of times, and I've heard other people use it as a result because it, it's a good one. He's seldom early and never late. But you know, the reality is sometimes folks do die, though. Sometimes you do have the feeling he's, he was late. He's too late. Sometimes folks don't get better. Sometimes marriages don't reconcile. Sometimes we lose that job or don't get that appointment we thought we were in line for or had hoped for. But he's working a plan for his glory in his time because he can do that. Because he's God. He's God and we're not. I mean, that's something I really want you to think on for a minute. He's God and we're not. I'll show you, just give you a little example before we move on in John chapter 11. This is the first of three things, and it's really a, a treat 
to, I think, to glean this from this passage. So let me just share a little window into the book of Genesis, uh, into the Exodus, the timing of the Exodus. Okay, let me give you a little background. Just imagine that you're one of the Israelites that's embedded somewhere within 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay, you're in there somewhere, feeling forgotten, feeling like God's just too late. He made these promises to Abraham, but where is he? He made these promises to Abraham in John chapter 15. And listen to what he says. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. They'll be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. God told Abraham this was going to happen. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He's speaking of the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. A generation would be around about, at least in their terms, 100 years. For the iniquity, here's the timing. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What in the world does that mean? That means that it wasn't dark enough in Canaan yet for the conquest to begin. God's waiting for Canaan to be dark enough, for Jericho to be dark enough for the fitting, for for Joshua to fit the battle of Jericho. It wasn't dark enough in Canaan yet for the exodus to happen earlier. So the 400-year mark was God's timing for God's glory in the exodus and then the consequent conquest. Because this whole timing thing is not for your benefit. It's for God's glory. And he can get away with that because he's God. Man, over the years, as I've preached this way, as we've dealt with the scriptures this way, as people have a difficult time with the notion of illness for the glory of God, sickness and loss for the glory of God, I've realized that there's some folks that just have a disdain for a God like that, who might allow something like that for his children. Frankly, I have a disdain for a God that's not about his own glory. I have a disdain for the notion of a God that's not worth glorifying. I have disdain for the notion of a God whose plans and timing are not more important than the timing and plans of his people. If if we were the ones that were most important in that whole scenario, who would be God in that? We would be God. If he's just about hustling around to fix our problems on our timing, who's the God in that scenario? We are. But he's working out plans that are bigger than ours. I'm imagining the number of people that prayed over that 400 years, the Israelites that prayed, say, God, where are you? You've forgotten us. But God was waiting because, because he, he tarries for his timing for glory. And if you're in the middle of a time where you feel like he's tarrying, he's not messing with you. He wasn't messing with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He was up to his own glory in his timing and on his terms because he loved them. All right, let's continue on in verse 7. We're going to read a big chunk right now and focus primarily uh, picking up um, in verse 17. So then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, 
because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, you're walking with me, you're walking in the day because he's the light of the world, right? After saying these things, he said to him, our friend, or to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The, the disciples are a very literal bunch, apparently. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, all right, you big dummies, Lazarus has died. I, the big dummies thing I put in there, you know, that's not, that's not in any translation, but uh, just the tone of it. All right, numbskulls, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas called the twin, <laughs> you got to like doubting Thomas, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us go with him that we all may die with him. <laughs> I mean, there's real people walking out real stuff right here. It's pretty funny. All right, so now pick up in verse 17. When, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He shows up way too late. I mean, four days is too late. Like four minutes, maybe. I mean, you heard of somebody that's like been frozen in a frozen lake or something. 40 minutes, maybe. But four days, oh. I mean, even Martha points out later, he's going to have an aroma. He's going to be like, you, know, you ever had a cast on your arm? And then when they take that thing off? You're like, oh my gosh, what happened under there? Well, that's what happened to Lazarus for four days. He's dead. He's like really dead. He's four days dead. It's too late. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary, to console them concerning their brother. Something that's interesting about this time in ancient Israel, they would actually hire mourners. So there's probably a group of hired mourners from Jerusalem that they brought in to weep and wail. Can you imagine that job? That'd be, that'd be a crazy job, man. She could really cry, boy. You ever heard her wail? She's one of the best. Now, so they had a crew. It's just, that has nothing to do with it. I think it's funny, though. But it wasn't funny here. All right, this is a crew of mourners brought in. They've lost their brother. And there's real sadness going on. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house, seated. It's interesting, the posture's familiar, isn't it? Mary's hustling about. She's going to rush to the scene, just like she's tending to the dinner, right? Over there in Luke chapter 10, while Mary's just seated. Over there, she's worshiping. Over there in Luke chapter 10, enjoying the Lord. Right here, she's awash with sadness. It's like two different vastly different personalities right here and jesus loves them both that's good one's awash in sadness just seated and one's hustling about to tune jesus up is what she's going to do here in these next few minutes in verse 21 it says lord if you had been here my brother would not have died can you imagine the tone of martha it's the same martha that said jesus would you talk to mary and tell her to get to work I'm trying to tend to this meal and everybody. You can imagine the tone. And you can imagine how you would feel if your friend who you knew loved you and you believed was the Messiah tarried and you didn't know why. Man, in some ways, she basically says what all of us are thinking. I thought you loved us. Where were you? Why did you tarry? I know you're capable of sparing me the troubles of sickness and loss, Jesus. 
So why did you wait? If only you'd come on my terms and at my time, this would have all ended happily. She says what we all think at times. And then in the very next verse, verse 22, she says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you such faith. She's really honest and frail and almost a selfish kind of faith in the previous verse. But here in verse 22, this massive faith. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I'm thinking of the contrast between verse 21 and 22 where she's vacillating. I'm thinking, man, thank the Lord for real human beings in these stories. Does your faith ever vacillate, even in the middle of a crisis, where one minute you think the Lord's right here and he's good, and the next minute you're thinking, where in the world are you from minute to minute? Man, that ought to be encouraging to anybody else in this room that experiences a little bit of a manic faith when you're going through a crisis. That even the folks in our Bibles experience some of that, vacillating between one extreme and the other let's pick up in verse 23 we'll spend just a moment we're going to slow down just a moment verses 23 through 26 since they're our central passage jesus said to her your brother will rise again and martha said to him i know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day eventually when we're all resurrected i know that's going to happen then and jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In essence, what he's saying to Martha in those moments, he's saying, Martha, you thought this whole scenario was about Lazarus. This whole scenario and the timing and all the circumstances that have unfolded, this is about Jesus. This moment is not about Lazarus. This moment is about the Lord. He waited so he could demonstrate that he can raise the dead to life and that he is the resurrection and the life. He not only can do it, he is the resurrection and the life. This real-life problem of sickness and loss wasn't ever about Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is eventually going to have another funeral. You know that, right? He's not still alive. This was a temporary solution that had big picture teachings embedded within it. This whole thing was not about Lazarus. He eventually had another funeral. I thought about how funny that would be. Do you go to the first one or are you going to the second one? I, I, I went to the first one. I'm not going to another one. I missed the first one. I, at least I can make the second one. It is kind of comical. But it puts in view, in light, this thing was never about Lazarus. And he spoke to her in that moment and pointed her to something bigger than Lazarus' death. Uh, something I've enjoyed, too, is it illustrates the difference between bringing Jesus to a problem or bringing a problem to Jesus. Bringing Jesus to a problem is to say, Jesus, come here, I've got this circumstance over here, this joblessness issue, I've got this marital issue, I've got this family issue, this relational issue, this sickness issue. Can you fix this? Hey, Jesus, can you come fix this? Can you do what you do? Compare that to bringing the problem to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what are you going to do in this joblessness situation? What are you up to in this sickness and loss? 
how are you going to be glorified through this terrible trial? Two very different approaches. The second one's looking for his glory, knowing that he's not messing with you, but he's waited for the purpose of his glory. May we never be so charmed that we have no problems to bring our Lord to or to bring to our Lord. The better option. May we never be so charmed that we never have any problems that we can see his glory working. That would be a terrible problem to have no problems at all. How far do we stop? How far do we get? We get all the way through. Where did I stop reading? 27? Okay, let's pick up at verse 28. I stopped at 26. Yes, thank you. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. He called for the sulking and sad, attentive to the hurting. Okay, that's a little preparation for where we're going in this second point. And, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You remember that message that basically what, what Martha was saying? The very same thing. I thought you loved us. Why did you wait? Why did you tarry? I know you're capable of sparing me the troubles of sickness and loss, so why did you wait? If only you'd come on my terms, and at my time, this would all have ended happily. The very same words that her sister Martha shared with Jesus. And then beginning in verse 33 through 36, this dear window into the character of our Lord. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to her, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. thing I enjoy from that little window is the second thing I wanted to bring out this morning. First of all, the Lord waits. God waits. The second thing we could add into that is that God weeps. God weeps. If you have this picture of our Lord just sitting back and just kind of cool enjoying when you're in the dark night when you're going through some difficulty or struggle enjoy that simple verse Jesus wept and consider that your Lord cares about your struggle so much so that he's deeply moved so much so that he weeps the Hebrews preacher identified him as a sympathetic high priest Man, there's nothing worse than one that's not, right? Aloof, and uncaring, 
whatever you're going through, whatever. But a sympathetic high priest grieves with those who grieve. Weeps with those who weep. He knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows exactly the power he's bringing to this moment. He knows he's going to call Lazarus from death to life. Yet he weeps with those who weep. He grieves, but not as a hopeless one. He grieves as one who has hope of something profound happening. Man, for those folks who are going through real life stuff, it can help you to know that God waits. It can help you to know that God weeps. We have a sympathetic high priest that cares about your pain. Let's continue on in verse 37 through verse 44 is our last chunk that we're going to look at together. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved, there it is again, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, he's dead, by the way, reminded by John. Thank, thankful for that little reminder, John. He's dead. He's dead. He said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead. There it is again, four days. He's rank dead. He's, it's too late dead, Jesus. Don't do this, please. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What's so great about the resurrection and the life, what's so great about our Lord is not only does he weep with you, but he actually can do something about the greatest problems. He actually acts. Now, it's in his timing and on his terms. But he acts. It's nice to know he's deeply moved, right? It's nice to know that he weeps with those who weep. But he's deeply moved. I'm talking even, first of all, geographically, that he left the Father's right hand to take on flesh and join us in this human mess. He's deeply moved, in fact, right? Geographically. But he's moved to act. He's moved to do something about this big problem we're dealing with called death. And he's able to do something about it. He's deeply moved, indeed. A God who needs nothing, a God who's not served by human hands, is moved by our sadness and loss and struggle, so he does what no one else can do. And he calls Lazarus 
from death to life. The same God who said, let there be light, said, let there be Lazarus. Ha! Right? Man, can you imagine that moment? (laughs) It doesn't matter how dead he is. He could be four minutes dead, four days dead, 40 days dead, four years dead. He's not too dead for these powerful words from our Lord to call him from death to life, these recreating words, these rebirth words. I'm just imagining the stirring in that tomb at that moment. Everybody's wafting, you know, that wafting smell. It's like, oh, it's terrible. We're going to get a reminder. He's four days dead. And then Jesus declares and calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And you actually hear some noise in there. Can you imagine that moment? You actually hear some stirring in there. And you're like, what? What's going down here? What's happening here? And you see a guy, he, the only way he could have moved is hopping. It's comical at the same time. His feet are bound. And he comes hopping out, wrapped face and hands and feet. And he's alive. Man, the resurrection and the life shows that not only get it, he can, but that he is the resurrection and the life. What a moment. And so fittingly, he makes another request and demand. Unbind him and let him go. He not only raises from death to life, he gives the freedom to walk in abundant life. Take those straps off of him. Take those cloths off of him so he can walk in freedom from sin and death. Unbound, unfettered, this one who is resurrection and life gives Lazarus both. John 10.10 says, I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Get those strips off of him. Let's give him a bath. Get to walking. Lazarus, unhindered, unchained, unencumbered. The chains of sin and death are gone. Amen? Man, that's good medicine. This window into this chapter, he waits, he weeps, and he wakes has got to reframe all that we go through. We're real people needing real help too and real problems. And he continues to give it through this living word. He waits, he weeps, and he wakes. This has got to change the way that we deal with sickness and struggle and loss. It's got to make for a people that grieve with hope. Not as those who grieve with no hope. It's got to make for a people that go through difficulty and struggle knowing that you can wait on him and that his timing is going to be impeccable. And it likely won't be on your terms and in your timing. And that it actually can be because he loves you, he's waiting for his timing. That's got to change the way we difficult, deal with difficulty. That's got to condition it and reframe it and inform it knowing that he's always up to his glory because he can do that because he's God. And it's got to change the way we deal with difficulties and struggles knowing that he's deeply moved for us. 
He weeps for us and with us. A sympathetic high priest, indeed. And ultimately, lastly, that he acts on that. He's deeply moved and he acts and does what no one else can do. He gives us victory over death for those who are united to him by faith so that we can live life unbound. Let's pray. Lord, I am asking that these words will in fact equip us to move in a way that is different from a world that grieves without hope. Lord, I pray that all the things that we can bring to that sentence, it's illness for the glory of God, or joblessness, or relational struggles for the glory of God, or marital struggles for the glory of God, whatever we might put in that sentence, either at this moment or in the future, Lord, that we can enjoy that you love us by waiting. And that you love us in timing your glory so that we can see it and enjoy it and grow. Lord, I'm thankful for this window in this chapter of a grieving family that's dealing with a real problem. And I'm thankful for this unbelievable truth that came out of it, of the life and resurrection that we have in the person of Christ. We enjoy that profoundly this morning. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.